Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Quarteraro, providing strong advocacy and experienced counsel to corporate and individual clients for over 50 years. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. We are recording. We are recording. We're back again. And we're going to talk about, this is a lot of inside baseball, I think, but there's something about this that I always find fascinating. We've done a few of these talks in the last couple of years, given the ups and downs of markets and housing and the issues that we're always facing out here. So welcome to 27 Speaks. That's where we're headed. And that was Brendan O'Reilly. You heard at the top of the podcast there. Hi, Brendan. Hi, Annette. Hi, everybody. I'm Brendan. I'm the Deputy Managing Editor of the Express News Group. And also joining us today with a brand new set of headphones, it looks like, is Joe Shaw. Hi, Joe. Yeah. You have to tell me if this sounds better. Uh, This is my ongoing goal to improve our product here at uh, 27 Speaks, but also for me to buy stuff because I like to buy stuff. So new headphones. Uh, I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. So you know what I think would really improve our quality of our podcast is actually buying microphones, which we still haven't done. It's been sort of in the Amazon cart for about a year now. There you go. And they're only like 35, 40 bucks each. (laughs) So um, he thinks that's where we need to go. So we'll work on that. I bought one of those headsets for $35 that was supposedly great for podcasting. And then I used it and it sounded terrible. Yeah, that's my problem. Those headsets are awful. I'm surrounded by headphones and microphones that have gone to the scrap heap because they just can't make them work. So you'll tell me if this is better or worse than my usual sound. I think the bigger bigger issue is everybody's an uneven quality, you know? Like, that's the harder thing is to adjust it. Like, you know, you may sound sound fine on your own, but the second that another person comes in, it got it. Yeah, whatever. You know, we've made it work. People are apparently still tuning in. So we're doing all right. (laughs) Um, So my name is Annette Hankel. I'm the Arts and Living Editor of the Express News Group. And also joining us is a guest we've had on before. We're very excited to have him back. And that's Jonathan Miller. And Jonathan is the president and CEO of Miller Samuel Inc. Did I get that right? You sure did. Thank you. That's a mouthful. <laughs> Jonathan Miller, CEO of Miller Samuel Inc. Um, so you, you're a real estate consulting firm. Yeah, we're actually real estate appraisers and also market analysts. So we publish, or we, the Douglas Elliman publishes our research across the United States. That's great. Yeah, we love checking in with you every once in a while um, just to see how the market's going, what's been happening in recent quarters and and get the crystal ball out to see what might be happening down the road. Um, So our conversation today is based on a story that Brendan wrote recently about the um, fourth quarter real estate market. So, Brendan, do you want to introduce our topic and bring up some of the issues that Jonathan can expound on? Sure. Uh, So I talk with Jonathan nearly every quarter about what's going on in the Hamptons market, how things are shifting, his reports, which, as you mentioned, are available from Douglas Elliman. They're called the Elliman Report, and there's one that's just based on the Hamptons, and they come out every quarter, and there's a year-end look back, and they're very good resources to get a sense of where the market is and was, because by the time you read these reports, you know, the data is already a few weeks old. 
So uh, something that was true three weeks ago could be completely different because maybe the Fed announced an interest rate change or maybe conflict broke out in some part of the world and it affected things. But uh, whenever the year turns, it's a good time to look back and see how things went, what expectations were met, what way the market defied expectations. I think 2023, there was a lot of hope that it was going to be this year where things opened up and it was more normal. It was more 2019. It wasn't that surge right after the pandemic, but it wasn't also that dip right after the surge. But things really didn't level off quite yet. Prices went up, but sales were down because there's not a lot of houses for sale. Uh, at the same time, a lot of people didn't want to look for houses because interest rates were up. But even though there was maybe fewer people looking, there was enough people looking that prices stayed very strong. So uh, Jonathan could get into the nitty gritty details on this for us. Which I'm happy to. Just to sort of uh, you know look back at 2023 for two seconds and say if we were doing we were doing this a year ago, um, I sort of prognosticated that the 2023 would be the year of disappointment um, because sellers weren't going to get their 2021 prices and buyers weren't going to see any meaningful discounting going on. And I and I think I was right. And uh, and I think what we're we've looking back now at 2023, I think we're looking at it as uh, maybe the bottom of the cycle and on transactions themselves. And um, what happened and what Brendan was sort of alluding to, uh, you know, the Fed pivoted this past December and they did something that uh, essentially gave sort of a, a, a tangible vision of what 24 was going to be like. And so I was trying to figure out like what's a sort of snappy saying for 2024. And I came up with uh, the year of incremental change and everybody that I told that to, there was like dead silence. Um, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a, you know, catchy thing. So I ended up changing it to the year of less disappointment, <laughs> and which is, which is that 23, you know, just sort of conceptually is the sort of the bottom of the pandemic era and 24 is a step forward. And the reason for that was the Fed um, announcement in 2020, uh, in December of 23, uh, that they were going to cut rates 75 basis points, which means that mortgage rates would drift lower and you know sort of the stereotype of a high-end hamptons buyers oh they don't care about interest rates uh and that's patently not true because um while they may not need interest rates to necessarily finance their finance their purchase they're looking at the financial markets which are heavily influenced by fed policy so i don't and and you know the fact that volume has been lower um, sort of tells you that it does matter, right? Um, you know, over the last year. Can you explain that, Jonathan? What, why, you know, when you have wealthy buyers who aren't going to use mortgages to make purchases, how does the change in the interest rates affect their willingness to to buy? Right. So, so you know, their businesses perhaps are influenced by higher interest rates across the economy. Um, you know, they're looking at it sort of, you know, as it's not three-dimensional chess, but it's, it's you know, it clearly impacts many of their lives or their business lives, that is, 
Um, and also, I think what happened over 20, during 2023 is this idea that there, there wasn't a path forward. We didn't know what was going to happen. Is the Fed going to raise rates you know, for another year or two, you know, there was no like definition of it. And, uh, and essentially what the Fed did was sort of, sort of tighten it up, tighten up the story and say, hey, you know, uh, uh, we're going to make, th you know, based on past experience with 25 basis points cuts, they said 75 basis points mean three cuts. And Wall Street is sort of factoring in another two price cuts in early 25. So, so what it did was it said, look, uh, today versus a year from today, rates will be lower a year from now. They'll be lower probably for two years from now, from today. And um, and so when you think about that, what does that mean to the housing market? What it, I think, signals is that there's going to be an increase in demand, even though rates are still double what they were. Um, there's going to be an increase in demand, and um, and and we're already seeing across the nation we're seeing pricing rising. Um, so you also have a situation where people are maybe waiting for rates to really fall um, before they buy, and the reality is that prices are going to go up, or you know. Um, you know, at the same time. And, and so it's sort of put a little bit of a, I don't want to say a hurry into sort of the, the buy sell relationship, but it, but it's put some definitions or boundaries that I think people are, um, will impact behavior. Can I ask, is there any place in the country the prices are going down? Well, as a general rule, like when you look at average or median, right, it's the it's the aggregate, right? So in aggregate, um, none that I'm aware of, um, uh, you know, like in Southern California, you're, you're seeing a surge of contract activity and you're seeing, you know, prices rise. Um, the stereotypical housing market and I hate to say that Hamptons is stereotypical um, because it's very unique in obviously many ways, but the sort of the general pattern of housing markets today, no matter what kind of market they are, if they're a primary market, they're a vacation market, um, they're something in between, they're a suburb, they're an urban market. The story is almost universally similar across the nation, which is that inventory is restrained um and in fact in the 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 what the fall of um of 2023 new inventory coming in the market was falling on top of it already being low and then uh and then sales down which you know in you know if you're a real estate professional in the hamptons it's a transactional business and there are fewer transactions because of higher rates combined with sort of the uncertainty about the future, you know, in terms of rate direction and what the, you know, we're going to hit a recession. Um, and then the other is that prices are rising because inventory is so uh, challenged. And, 
you know, that's what's confusing so many people because, you know, in a typical scenario, you have an, a negative external event like a spike in mortgage rates, sales slow, inventory piles up, and that's where the price discovery occurs, where pricing comes down because there's more competition. But that didn't happen, right? We had, we had uh, inventory sort of stuck, and the reason it's stuck uh, is because the spread between someone that bought at three or four percent thirty-year fix, just to pick a, a type of mortgage, um, you know, and the and the rates were like almost at eight percent at one point last year. The spread between the you know the prevailing rate and the the rates that people are enjoying through a purchase or a refinance. They weren't in any hurry. And then, oh boy, you know, there's a recession looming. Like for the last two years, economists have been forecasting a recession in six months, right? And now, and and like to many consumers, it's like the boogeyman, you know, the 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 R word. It doesn't they just know it's scary, but they don't know why. And the way to think of a recession really is job loss. So if you have really low rates and high unemployment you're trying the low rates are designed to to sort of pull back the account you know generate more activity and what's weird in this is the first time in my life or my my professional life that we actually have um the fed talking about rate cuts and wall street talking about more than that um and unemployment's under 4%. Like, it's the perfect storm for housing. I'm not suggesting a boom, but it's like, hey, we have low rates. At the same time, we have high employment, low unemployment. Um, and so that sort of change in sort of sentiment, I think, uh, you know, makes 24 a, a not a boom or a frenzy, but a much better or more active, more transactions um in the market than we had in 23 that's my long-winded answer <laughs> can i can i ask you a question that's kind of a little bit going off to the side here but what effect does this being a presidential election year play into housing markets especially one that's so contentious as the two candidates were looking at sure so i did a study using manhattan co-op so the, like is the you know farthest thing from the hamptons market but i picked co-ops because there's really no new construction, you know, new construction comes to the market when it's, um, you know, ready to, you know, it gets its certificate of occupancy and in condos, you have such a split market between new construction and resales. So I picked co-ops and I went back to 1990. Actually, it's on my newsletter. Um, I, if I could just tout my, I publish a, a weekly newsletter called Housing Notes on Fridays at 2 p.m. And I published the research of the week and then kind of prevailing issues. And last week, I shared a bunch of charts I'll send to you um, uh, about what an election year looks like um, in housing. And so what I did was I looked at the election, federal elections, even in odd years, and even years, midterms in the presidential election and odd years are the in-between years. And generally what you see I'm going back to 1990, is that in an even year, 
you know, an election year like 2024, is that you see around the end of June, the end of the second quarter, 4th of July-ish, you see sort of this continuing sort of oversized decline in activity until November. And then at the end of the year, you see a surge in activity and you don't see that in pricing. You, you know, pricing doesn't really, it doesn't seem to be impacted. On the odd years, you have more of the seasonal, you know, the fall and spring being the sort of the two hump camel, um, but it's sort of uh, distorted in the non-election year. Doesn't matter the party or the candidate yeah. is, and 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 so what it is is a level. Uh, it's a you're in election you're adding a variable to the equation, and what do consumers do when there's a another variable? And they're not sure. They wait. They pause, right? And I think that's the way to look at it. It's not like oh, prices go down or prices go up. It's more when transactions occur. Uh, ultimately, um, it, at least that's my opinion and what I've um, processed with this stuff. I'm curious, Jonathan. I, when when we talk about the real estate market here and put it in the context of the national real estate market. I've always sort of been of the mind that there may be some impact of national trends, but this region has such a unique quality that it's really hard to, to equate what's going on here with what's going on nationally. Obviously, there's some impact. And as you said, some of the same factors that affect real estate everywhere are going to have an impact here, especially what's going on in current events, right. and things like that. But this really is a unique market, isn't it? I mean, there's, sure. there's a lot of uh, elements of it that that make it very hard to analyze because it it isn't like, you know, real estate in Chicago or real estate in Iowa or real estate in Florida. It's 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 got its own unique qualities. Yeah, it does. Um, but it's so I agree with you. Um, but on but I wouldn't fully sort of see it as detached from, you know, sort of uh, economic reality or political reality. Like, and and the reason why I say that is, you know, when I think of the Hamptons, I think it's, you know, at least the luxury side of the Hamptons is joined to the hip with Wall Street, Manhattan, right? Um, uh, you know, fair or unfair, I, I see it as significantly influenced. And I, I think for like, 20 years, like the median price in the Hamptons sort of paralleled the median price in Manhattan. Um, uh, so, so I, I, I don't disagree with you. I j but I don't think it's, it's severed or completely disconnected. It, there definitely is some element to that. Um, and I think that's borne out by what just happened with rates. Um, and the fact that inventory, you know, you're, in, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a dull and boring numbers guy, right? And I'm looking at what, um, you know, inventory is behaving the same way it is in Iowa, and the same way it's behaving in Southern California, and the same way it's behaving in all of Florida, and the same way it's behaving in Washington D.C. Same way it's, you know, so, so there are components that do sort of drive the narrative that are not sort of the local nuances. Um, uh, that you're talking about, even though I don't disagree. 
Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro, providing strong advocacy and experienced counsel to corporate and individual clients for over 50 years. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks is brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton. They buy books, collections, libraries, individual titles. Very easy process. They handle everything. Do you have books to sell? Call or email today or visit SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations, including office positions. So on that score, I'm just wondering, is real estate seasonal? I mean, we know that out by us, I guess that, you know, this time of year, winter going into spring is when people are really eager to to buy or look or really get into it, the place they're going because we're such a summer resort. But do those, does that same seasonal trend hold in other parts of the country as far as when people like to get into homes? Um, I would say uh, almost, it almost tracks the one difference is the fourth quarter of the year um there is um i have a chart on this that um i looked at for the last like 20 years i looked at the you know if you say you know a quarter should have 25 percent of the activity and normally like the second and third quarter are the busiest quarters in a traditional housing market and this is where joe's point about you know, Hamptons being a little bit different, is that um, in all, all, almost every quarter for the last 15 or 20 years, the fourth quarter, um, ha, you know, at the high end of the market, meaning 5 million and above, which in this quarter was 20% of the market, um, you, you, you had a surge in activity because people were sort of timing, you know, tax implications. Were they next year? you know, is there more exposure to higher taxes next year or this year? And it would poach from the first quarter. And that typically doesn't happen in a sort of traditional housing market. So that's one example where sort of the numbers are different in the Hamptons that way. So have you seen any markets where um, where you're surprised that things have changed, either gone from being a hot market to being a cold market or from a cold market to a hot market just wondering if there's parts of the country that have um gone in a different direction well uh in a super macro way you know sunbelt states uh you know have been faring better there's been a lot of migration from uh the northern states high tax states like california have lost a lot of people to texas right and um but the texas market is cooled because interest rates are more than double what they were, right? So um, so uh, clearly sort of high tax to lower tax is one impetus. And then the other is, um, and this is something that I think helps the Hamptons is just work from home. Um, you know, I think that that really economically changed the calculus for many people, um, you know, you know, hey, you know, I work in New York City, um, but I could probably do, you know, a bunch of my things that I do on Zoom from my home in the Hamptons. 
right? I'm, you know, like that didn't exist before. It's not that people didn't do that, but it at the scale, I think, and the frenzy that we saw coming out of the sort of lockdown era in the Hamptons sort of was very telling. Um, and uh, and then just look at, you know, the office, you know, the commercial office world in New York City. You know, many of those, you know, when you think about how, you know, the, all that empty space, and that's like another five-hour discussion, which I'm happy to, uh, I don't want to steer this off the rails, but um, <laughs> but a lot of that is because work from home. I mean, you know, why do I have to, you know, why can't I sit in my home in the Hamptons and enjoy it um, and then still work um, and work a lot, but do it remotely? And and even if it, it isn't just Zoom, it's sort of a change in sort of mindset about, you know, what you can do, where you can do it. And that's why Florida has benefited tremendously from this experience. And I think, you know, in the long run, I think uh, the Hamptons will as well, but it's still susceptible to, you know, spikes in mortgage rates and things like that. Let me ask you, Jonathan, I had someone just ask me the other day, uh, the influx of people around the pandemic where we had, we, we had the phenomenon of so many people who moved out and bought houses. And, and the question I was asked was, are all those people still here? And I've got to ask you, because my answer was, you know, it's a great question. My, my, my impression is that a lot of those people went back to the city but have kept their houses here. But that means that you have a lot of empty houses at times that they were full during the pandemic, um, but they're, they're not on the market. They, the people who bought out here have kept those. But you tell me, what, what, what's the fallout post-pandemic? Did, it, did the, the influx of people stay or, or did a lot of those people just pull up roots and go back to the city? So my take in terms of what I've seen and what I've looked at is exactly the way you're describing it. You know, all those people that bought and the bidding wars and all the, you know, sort of zany behavior, you know, of like trying to get what wasn't, you know, available. And um, those people didn't sell because inventory has been low. I mean, inventory is rising, but inventory has remained very low. And um, and so I think that's pretty solid evidence that they didn't go anywhere. They're just um, the city perception of the city became sort of less dangerous. And um, and so, you know, I was sort of I think even the last time I was on the call, I was sort of calling the phenomenon like co-primary homes. It's like you buy a home in Manhattan and you don't have it's not a second home. It's a it's a it's a second primary home. And, uh, you know, and, you know, your school system was overwhelmed and, um, you know, there's a lot of sort of technical challenges of having this mass migration to the Hamptons and then, you know, the strain on services and all that kind of stuff. So, so now I think those people, you know, maybe, I don't want to say it's normal, but it's normalized a bit where you don't have that extreme sort of separation where, you know, they're living full-time in the Hamptons. Um, I just don't think that's happening anymore. I think sort of, you know, sort of calm, it's calmed down a bit. And I wonder too, how the market is different right now 
in the sort of three rough um, different levels, let's just say 1.5 million and under, 1.5 to 5 and 5 and over. How is the market different in those three areas? Sure. I'm, I'm glad I asked uh, you asked that because I, um, I've sort of, uh, you know, I've talked to Brendan about it too, where I've, I separate sort of historically, I divided into the market into thirds, even though they're not equal numbers and thirds, I think of the market as 5 million above one to five and then under one. All right. And I personally bumped that up to one and a half to five, just because I figured the one million dollar house in the regions becoming right. becoming less and less uh, thing. Right, exactly. No, I, I think that's a fair point. Um, but uh, you know, when you looked at the results, when we looked at the results of the fourth quarter after the dust settled, the market share of five million or higher sales was the highest in history. Mm. It was. 19.8%, almost uh, one out of five sales in the Hamptons in the fourth quarter. And that's a big uh, uptick. That's uh, the last record um, market share of 5 million or up, and I'll get to the other segments, but um, was five quarters prior in the third quarter of 22 when it was 12.9. Uh, and that was an all-time high. So it went from 12.9 to 19.8. I mean, that's a huge increase. Um, and so, you know, the high end for whatever reasons, really at the end of this year, and again, my point of like the high end fourth quarters have become so much more distorted, you know, distorted, um, compared to the other quarters, um, you know, especially since the financial crisis, um, and then under a million was 46.9%. It was, um, it wasn't a record or any, but it was sort of you know, in sync with the last couple of years. Um, if I go back two years, they sort of straddle 50% of the market in terms of transaction volume, not pricing, but just transactions. Million dollars is sort of half the market. Um, and that's what it is in Manhattan. It's very similar. It's a similar relationship. Half above, half below. So one of the things that Brendan had written in his story, which I thought was interesting, was the fact that... Um, you know, people who keep the community humming of service workers and those that live in and actually do the work in the community are being able to afford this area less and less. Do you see, do you even look at that kind of thing, like the lack of affordable housing options and how the effect that might have on a market down the road? Right. So I live in Connecticut and um, I moved during the pandemic further inland, sort of higher elevation, small town. Um, and the town I lived at was on Long Island Sound. And we used to have, I lived in Darien, Connecticut for like 32 years. And um, I was actually active in town government. I did, you know, I was very involved. And um, it was incredible uh, because um, we would have snow days and it would be clear and sunny, cold, but no snow because people were driving further inland, you know, from inland, the teachers and the teachers couldn't get to work. So here we are having a snow day. My kids are playing outside. There's no snow and because we're near the sound and, you know, we usually get a lot less snow until you go like 10 miles inland and the teachers couldn't get to there. So how good is that for a town? That's terrible. Um, you know, it's hard to attract 
quality, you know, a work quality workforce if they can't afford to live there. The thing is, um, and I don't track demographics, uh, that's like a whole nother discipline, but um, uh, I'm very attuned to the issue and it and it is, New York City's having the same problem, um, yeah. you know, in a, in a more general way. Um, you know, one of the things that makes an area vibrant is, you know, people that, the workers that provide the services or make the services possible. And if you're in a high-end market or, you know, any kind of market and you don't have those services because the commutes are so far, that's a real challenge. And um, and I don't know what the answer is other than build more housing, but that doesn't work in the Hamptons. So, you know, now that we have the community housing fund coming online in the Hamptons specifically, and for those who don't know, this is a half a percent tax on real estate transactions that goes into a fund to provide affordable housing opportunities. And that could be uh, providing homes that are sold at an affordable rate. That could be building housing that becomes rentals or maybe it becomes condos. There's actually a variety of way that the money can be used by the town of Southampton and the town of East Hampton. But it does take some time to build. So there it takes time to right. um, open that relief valve. But there are other opportunities such as subsidizing somebody's mortgage. Maybe the town buys the first $500,000 of your house and then when it resells, they get that money back with appreciation and you get your money with appreciation. Sure. Um, are there successful models of this that you're aware of that um, do release that pressure valve in these luxury towns that you follow? So uh, there's been, just across different regions, there have been similar um, you know, subsidy type programs that have been offered. The challenge is that most towns don't have the budget to really do it at scale that's really needed. Um, and so I'm very hopeful, uh, you know, that there's a lot more of this. Um, but, you know, it, it, provides a real constraint, you know, governments don't necessarily have, I mean, in, in New York City, that's a massive challenge. Um, and it seems like this is a problem. This is a, if you had to pick a challenge to the housing market, the word is affordability, whether it's, you know, affordable housing used to mean government subsidized, um, but really it's middle-class housing. And, uh, and the, the funds, generally um, aren't there at the scale that they're, they're needed. They're there and there's very clever ways to do it, but I'm not really aware of anybody that's been able to solve the problem itself um, by these programs, just because there, there needs to be more of them. This is Catherine Manu, and I'm the editor of the Sag Harbor Express and co-publisher with my husband, Gavin, of the Express News Group. Local community news matters more than ever, with misinformation spreading constantly across the internet. We live in the communities we cover. We are your neighbors, your friends, your family. We tell the good stories and, unfortunately, the bad. We focus on your triumphs and losses. But we can't do this without our subscribers. To subscribe, please visit 27east.com slash subscribe. And thank you for your support. 
Jonathan, let me ask you a simple question. The kind of middle class or workforce housing that we're talking about, does building it lower property values for other people? Uh, so in my experience, no. Um, but, you know, the whole sort of NIMBY movement, you know, that's a challenge with like bringing in affordable housing. Um, the thinking is very old school. It's like, hey, you know, the appraisers coming in or the brokers are just going to sort of average look at Southampton and say, hey, we have a bunch of lower price stuff. And, you know, the the aggregate pricing went down, so it must impact the value. And it's really not true. <laughs> um, but the thinking is still clearly there. And so, you know, a lot of this sort of nimbyism, um, you know, it half the battle is just getting sort of community approval, um, community board approvals, um, whatever, you know, the type of government, the local, you know, economy runs on. And, and it's not just the program itself, but it's sort of selling it to the, to, and I, I just think that's a, you know, a gradual process. Hopefully that improves over time. I, um, but it's nowhere near where it needs to be. The perception is wrong. And, um, and that's unfortunate. So, one thing as you watch the inventory and it's like, yes, the inventory is tight. Something that I think I've pointed out with Jonathan the past couple of times I've talked to him is when we see that inventory number, it's not just that, oh, it used to be around 2000 and now it's around or a little bit less than a thousand. When you look at the makeup inside that smaller pool of inventory that there is, I feel like it skews towards the high end so much more than it used to. So maybe you used to have 2,000 homes for sale and 400 were under a million. Now you have 1,000 homes for sale and 40 are under a million. And it, that's just um, some, some guesswork. That's not the actual numbers. But I feel like it has moved in that direction. Have you seen that, Jonathan? Oh, absolutely. You're, you're spot on. Um, so, you know, if I just use sort of you know, a, a generic way to talk about inventory. Inventory rose this year. It's up 15%, but it's half of pre-pandemic levels. You know, it's a it's 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 about 50% less than it was before the pandemic. And the makeup, you know, you know, consider what I was saying earlier that you know the market share of five million or higher is up dramatically. One out of five transactions are five million or higher. Uh, and like Brendan said, well, you think about why are those homes selling? Well, because they're available. Like, you know, you know, one of, you know, th this idea that, you know, if you, because land prices are high, it's construction is expensive. Um, you know, the, the development of choice has been skewing to the higher end and that's been going on for probably a decade um, but I think now it's sort of a critical mass because, because without inventory, sales don't occur. So if you have product and it's heavily skewed towards high end, you're going to sell more of the high end product. You know, it's just there um, as opposed to, you know, waiting for it to get built or whatever. And, um, and that's why we had such a huge, we were having such a huge surge in you know, the 5 million or higher, you know, sort of market share because the product is there to be sold. Um, and that's, and that's the, the market challenge. 
um, I think, you know, you know, it's never good for a market to be one dimensional, like, you know, it's all high end or all low end or all, you know, there needs to be sort of, you know, um, you know, uh, because you have all kinds of different people, different demographics that live and service a market and you've got to have, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, a more reasonable distribution, but you can't, be, you can't blame developers um because they build what's economic most economically feasible right they get a piece of land they're going to build what they think is going to generate the most profit you know they're in the they're in risk management mode um and so it has to come from somewhere else and i think it's you know like what brendan was talking about it's going to be very sort of complicated creative ways to get more variety of housing into any kind of housing market you know, when the governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, had her proposal to mandate housing growth in different towns and municipalities, and if, if that municipality refused, there would be an opportunity for developers to go to the state and pitch a proposal to build something and say, well, you know, as long as a certain percentage is set aside for affordable you're going to let me build this many market rate units. And if it's near train stations, that's a big deal. And we actually had a live event about that with representatives from the governor's office. And our panel talked about how that does not actually solve our problems here. If, say, Bridgehampton is a train station and you let them, a developer come in, defy zoning, and build something that's 80% market rate and 20% affordable, you've just added a ton of luxury units while doing very little to alleviate the affordability issue. And by putting it next to the train station, as of what, now Bridgehampton is gonna solve New York City's housing crisis? It didn't seem like it was really fair or appropriate to us, right? Um, right. But is there some other legal maneuver? Is there a next step where the state's gonna say like, listen, all of you towns and villages with your super restrictive single family zoning, you know, one house every four acres or every two acres, you're going to have to give this a rest and we're going to dial back the home rule and the state's going to tell developers and landowners you are allowed to build housing um, because we're in a crisis here. Yeah. I mean, there's sort of been, you know, some areas of the country that have sort of nibbled at that, like Minneapolis is the most famous where they didn't want a single family uh, zone. There's no more single-family development allowed within, like the city borders. Um, you know, multifamily is. You know, they're trying to increase density, um, but you know that has not been sort of you know unleashed a frenzy of this kind of behavior. There have been other cities that have, you know, approached it the same way. I know there's some uh, in Oregon. There's some of that, but it's not this universal solution um that it could be you know the problem is density right single family owners don't necessarily want multifamily you know next door or in their neighborhood and so like i said the problem the challenge with affordable housing is getting buy in from the community you know and and what are the advantages to it as opposed to hey this pulls down that my property value um like your Bridgehampton example, um, you know, you know, you're you're going to end up creating something that you didn't intended by. You're probably creating more luxury housing. 
um and that wasn't the intent right so i think there's going to be a lot to write about in 2024 don't you oh absolutely i, I think you guys are going to be busy um for sure well jonathan where could people find you and find your housing notes sure so uh my company's website is millersamuel.com and on the home page uh I encourage you, it's free to sign up for my newsletter. Get a, it's got a pretty big following. It's called Housing Notes, and you'll see it on the homepage. And it comes out every Friday. I think I've been doing it. It's kind of scary. I think I've been doing it for like eight or nine years and never missed a week. <laughs> so uh, uh, my family has some issues with my consistency on this. Um, but uh uh, I encourage you and, you know, it's not always, you know, Hamptons is one market we cover, um, but also lots of real estate insights, I think would be helpful to your listeners. Thanks, Jonathan. We really appreciate your time. Oh, my, my pleasure. I, I appreciate it as well. Always insightful. So thank you. Thanks for bringing out the crystal ball. We'll check in later and see how you did. I forgot to warn you that my crystal ball is held together with duct tape. So I don't know <laughs> how this is going to go this year, but. I'm pretty pretty comfortable. Well, it's an election year. I think I think duct tape is the appropriate substance for 2024. <laughs> I think we're all held together by duct tape right now, <laughs> honestly. I, I think I agree. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Cordoraro providing strong advocacy and experienced counsel to corporate and individual clients for over 50 years. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and 27east.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.